RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. All right, we're going to talk about um, decentralised government or politics in just a moment in New Zealand. Yeah, like little mini states with Vince McLeod. And uh, Vince is from VJM Publishing and Nelson, and he joins me. Vince, uh, this is the first time we've met. I've had a look at uh, your website uh, and sort of like the bit of research I've done before chatting with you. Tell tell us a bit about yourself. You're based in Nelson. What's your background? G'day, Paul. I grew up in Nelson. I was born in Nelson. I'm a uh, I'm a New Zealander of about uh, six generations. I went to Canterbury University to study uh, psychology. I finished with a master's degree from there, psychology with honours. I went to Europe several times in my 20s. I spent most of the time in Sweden, learned a couple of different languages apart from English. I learned to speak fluent Swedish and German. And over there, I got to experience a completely different political culture to what exists in the Anglo countries, in particular in New Zealand. They have a very different way of thinking about things. And it yeah. got me interested in politics in general. So when I came back to New Zealand, the end of uh, 2008, I was interested in politics and particularly anti-tyrannical politics, freedom politics. So I ran for the Aotearoa Legalised Cannabis Party on the uh, on the party list. I was ninth on the party list in 2008. And ever since then, I've been studying and researching not only politics, but uh, psychology in particular and various other occult subjects. And uh, that's brought me to a, a, a very strong interest in in uh, freedom politics in general. A couple of things. One of the differences that um, you're talking about between what you saw in Europe, I think you mentioned Sweden and was it Germany? And we know Switzerland has a, a, a very long history of very localised politics. I think they've got over 2,000 local councils in Switzerland. Anyway, so what are the things that caught your eye and uh, comparing them to our set up here um, are the points of difference? Probably the major thing I noticed in Europe is that it is a lot more decentralised than New Zealand. A lot of New Zealanders who have visited Europe won't notice this because they'll be in Britain. And uh, Britain, like North Korea, is one of the few countries that's actually more centralised than what New Zealand is. But uh, I live most of that time in Sweden, and I spent about six months in Germany, and I saw Switzerland as well, and I saw how things work in Switzerland. And what I observed is that the people there are aware that if you devolve powers from the central government back to the people, then then uh, the people are a lot more free and it feels a lot better and it feels a lot less tyrannical than a system like New Zealand, where basically all the powers are at central level and you've got no ability to influence your local environment like um, you have in Sweden with what's called the commune, which are essentially uh, counties, and uh, how you have in Switzerland with the cantons. They have 26 different cantons. Each one has very different set of laws. And uh, I noticed that uh, people were a lot more satisfied with the system than uh, what people are in New Zealand, where everything is basically central government. Yeah, okay. So with your psychologist hat on now and looking at the current situation here, even the most optimistic ever sense that we've seen better days, that it's not the country we kind of grew up in. And there is a sense that there's been top-down tyranny forced on the people. Do you think it's accurate to say that, number one? And what's your assessment of the psychology of the nation? Number one, I think it's perfectly accurate to say that. If you look at uh, not only the COVID mandates, which a large number of New Zealanders thought were tyrannical, and uh, you saw that uh, expressed with the Parliament lawn protest, how many people were upset against that, 
but also with, for example, cannabis, you've got uh, cannabis, cannabis referendum happened three three years ago, 2020 general election, and uh, the central government ended up reimposing cannabis prohibition on the whole country. And uh, if you look at the actual statistics, for example, of uh, which electorates supported cannabis law reform, you see some distinct differences, such as, for example, in South Auckland, which is uh, which has a heavy Polynesian population, the Polynesians are generally against cannabis law reform. They voted about 35%, 40% in favour of reform. If you look at East Auckland, where there's a large Chinese population, they're also against cannabis prohibition. They voted about 20% in favour of law reform. But if you look at the Maori electorates, the Maori people are much different when it comes to cannabis. They're, they're big cannabis users in general. They're happy to have cannabis law reform. Uh, the Maori electorates voted about 75 to 80% in favour of reform. So if you think about that, um, if you think about that, it seems that uh, the Maori voters really have had the misfortune of being dragged into a nationalised, uh, centralised cannabis law that they don't really need. Mm. So to answer your second question about the mood of the nation, uh, I think uh, people are generally in a state of despair. Everybody I speak to is having real trouble figuring out who to vote for this election because uh, their support for politicians in general is just so low. No one seems like a good candidate. No one seems like they really have the answers to uh, to what New Zealand needs. If you think back to Norman Kirk, Norman Kirk said that people just have to have something to hope for. Yeah, he did. Uh, very few New Zealanders seem like they've got much to hope for nowadays. So I think things have probably been worse than at any point during my lifetime. I'm 42 years old, so I'm not a young man anymore. I've seen a lot of things, but I don't think I've ever seen New Zealand in a more despairing state than today. How do you explain, we'll get on to, you know, the what we're really here to talk about, decentralised yeah. politics in a small country like New Zealand, though we're not so small on land size, I know that. But anyway, the you mentioned Norman Kirk, big norm. Yeah. I also remember back in the day when um, David Frost was here, favorite, uh, a famous journalist and interviewer, British interviewer, he interviewed Norman Kirk here, and that um, interview played. And Norman Kirk had this incredibly clear vision of how New Zealand was to get ahead economically. He wasn't just a, to say, the touchy-feely things. He actually had a plan, and um, and it was all about growing exports and getting out finding new markets. Common sense. But, you know, it was so clearly expressed. We don't hear any of that these days. There, It seems to be there is no real honest discourse anymore from politicians to the great unwashed like you and I. How do you explain, again, psychology hat on, the behavior and the personalities now of politicians? They don't seem to be fit for leadership or authority. A lot of people think you feel the same way, and and if so, why? How do you think it's come to this? Not an easy question to answer. I, I get that. I feel that it has come to that, and I'd start by answering it. I'd start by answering it by saying that if you read Plato's Republic, he spoke about the natural course, the natural cycle of political systems, and in Plato's Republic, he said that political systems just generally tend to degrade over time; they get worse and worse over time until such a point at which there is a revolution. And then the revolution installs a, a better political system, and then that degrades over time. Over time, yeah. So what I would say is that the reason why things are so poor in New Zealand and in the Western world in general is just that simply that our political system has degraded. We've had neoliberalism now for about 40 years. So we've had, for 40 years, we've been focusing on nothing but profits, nothing but money, 
to the exclusion of things like investing in the actual population and their needs, like Norman Kirk would have done. Norman Kirk was, of course, before neoliberalism. He was in the 1970s. Yep. So I think uh, really it can be mostly explained by the simple fact that society has really degraded. It continues to degrade. And I personally think that uh, we need Plato's solution, which is a revolution of philosopher kings, which is why I'm glad that in the alternative media, we're doing shows like this and talking about something else. I've heard people raise the um, possibility, though they don't want it to be this way at all, that if we carry on going like we are, okay, we talk about a revolution, but it actually might be, you know, a hard revolution. It, it could end up being a real face-off and violence could be generated. Do you see, is that being over the top or do you see that as a, I mean, I don't want to be alarmist here, but things aren't good. So, I do not at all see that as being over the top. One thing I noticed in uh, when I was in Europe is that uh, before every disaster really strikes, whether we, before every political disaster or war or crisis really strikes, people end up thinking that it couldn't happen here. It's a very common thing to think that uh, political disaster couldn't happen here, couldn't happen wherever you are. But um, I think if you look back at New Zealand, we've had 170 years of more or less stability. But, um, I don't think it's over the top to think that uh, things have headed to an unprecedentedly bad space. I think uh, if you look at what's happened in Zimbabwe and South Africa over the last 40, 50 years, there are globalist forces in the world that would like to do a similar thing to New Zealand. And you see that uh, these forces have deliberately stirred up discontent between Maoris and white people here in New Zealand. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't say that's uh, led to civil war level tensions just yet, but I would say that things are worse than I've ever seen them. Yeah, and the division out of the um, events of the last few years, um, you know, I think we were pretty close to, you know, another couple more months of that and things could have kicked off. Yeah, for sure. Like, if you look at the Parliament lawn protests, I think the government was extremely concerned that uh, those could have spiralled out of control more and led to a, a nationwide revolution. But, but they would have caused it. Yeah, but they don't accept that. <laughs> they deny that all the way and blame everybody else. This is the weird disconnect. It is. It is. I don't think I've ever seen more disconnect. And you see that now with Christopher Luxon. He's he's uh, almost completely incapable of talking to the everyday man on his, his level. And I think he, Luxon, more than anything else, represents the extent that there's a disconnect between our ruling class and the people today. Yeah, it seems that the op mainstream opposition politicians they have, um, you know, you can make hay with what's hap happened in the last few years. You could be all over it, but it's never mentioned. And that really is code for, well, we were part of that too, so we can't really admit that, I, su I suppose. But it's a really, it's it's such a stupid situation to witness, I think, anyway. It's embarrassing, most, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't even consider them different parties so much as uh, one single political establishment now. And I think a yeah. lot of people are seeing it the same way, and that's why they're having so much trouble figuring out who to vote for. The Uniparty. Yeah, neither party. I've never heard more people say that uh, Labour and National are basically the same. Never heard more people say that than today. Have you heard people say, and I've said it myself, that that I might sit this one out? I have heard that. I have heard that, but uh, that's contrasted with the other people who say that this is the probably the most important election that we've had in in, uh, in recent probably this century. So uh, I'm not sure with, when it comes to the turnout rate. I would uh, I would expect the turnout rate to be a down a little bit on the previous election. The previous election was 82 percent, I think, which is unusually high. 
Yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, we're going to see a lot of apathy. We're going to see a lot of votes for minor parties as well, in my opinion. Yeah, but they're just fragmented and they're allocated to the main parties in the end anyway. So, you know, um, that may or may not mean anything. What, what would happen, though, if, you know, only, okay, it's a hypothetical, but let's say only 30% of the population, eligible population, voted? That doesn't give anyone a mandate to do anything. Uh, not a moral mandate, but uh, they still have the guns. That's the thing. It comes okay. down to who's got Coercion. the guns, who's got the command of the men with the rifles. Because even if they got only 10% of the population, as long as I've got 10,000 men with firearms willing to follow the orders, they still get to rule. Yeah, but you'd have to say um, in that situation, again, hypothetical, um, if you were the, you know, the winner on such a low voter turnout, you know that it's a powder keg. Potentially, so so you might be even more forced into um, being conciliatory and understanding and willing to do the right things than if you thought you had some kind of mandate or or support, you know, that was manifested in a way that looked like support, but really it was only because no one else could, could well, no one could think of anyone else to vote for, you know. Well, you might be conciliatory, but on the other hand, you might down, you might crack down harder and harder when yeah, it comes to free speech yeah. and uh, other freedoms. And you yeah, see, but then we push back even harder. Then that's when the revolution happens. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's why I think we're still a fair way away from a revolution because you haven't seen those the real crackdowns on on public freedoms that you normally see okay. before a revolution kicks off. So, so that's the that's the tell when you see the really real tightening of. Yeah, when when the government sends the police in to smash people, that's why I was so worried about the last day of the uh, Parliament lawn. Well, they did send they didn't send people in to smash people. They did. They did. Yes, exactly what happened. That's yeah. why I was worried because I thought if it ever kicks off and and the the crowd here is going to storm Parliament, if that's ever going to happen, that'll happen right now. Yeah. So I was worried then. <laughs> well, it just shows the good old Kiwis are peaceful at heart, and they've probably got the, the bigger picture in mind. Okay, let's get into. Um, this concept of decentralised politics in a small country with a small population like New Zealand. And um, this is uh, interesting because it's a thought experiment at the moment. But so this is like a, a federal system, but at quite a small scale because we're a small country, small population. But I think you point out in, in on your um, website where, where you're talking about this, that we're actually quite a large country in terms of land mass. So we probably shouldn't consider ourselves like a small country in those terms. Yeah, what most Kiwis don't understand is that the South Island alone is actually larger than England in terms yeah. of land mass. And they've got South 70 Island. million people. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the South Island could potentially fit 20 or 30 million people uh, without without too much strain necessary on our on natural resources. And that would mean that there were more than enough. I mean, that would be the size of Australia in terms of population. Yeah. So that would mean there was more than enough people there to uh, to support the divisions into uh, a more, or rather, let's say, less uh, centralised political system. We'd look more like Switzerland then. In so, so we'd need more people as part of this, do you think? No, not necessarily. Okay, we don't need right. more people at all. Like um, some Swiss cantons, for example, the smallest Swiss canton has only 16,000 people. Right. And uh, they seem to get on fine with having a lot of their own laws. So I think it would be entirely possible to divide New Zealand into about 16 provinces uh, where each one was based on a major city. Okay, so give us an idea of how that breaks down through the country then. Well, that would actually look very similar to what we had in the 1890s because New Zealand initially had a provincial government set up where the provinces had a lot of uh, devolved power. But that was removed by Julius Vogel in the 1980s, uh, sorry, in the 1890s, perhaps for uh, globalist reasons. 
So what we had back then was the South Holland was divided into, you had a Southland province based on Invercargill, an Otago province based on Dunedin, Canterbury province based on Christchurch, a Westland province based on Greymouth, a Nelson-Tasman province based on Nelson, and a Marlborough province based on Blenheim. So there you had six provinces in the South Island. North Island was similar in that you had a province in Wellington, New Plymouth, Palmerston North, Gisborne, Hastings, Napier, Hamilton, Tauranga, Auckland, and Whangarei. So you'd have about 16 provinces where each one was a major city and it had some kind of uh, rural area that it would uh, it would uh, it would administer. Right. Okay. So it's pretty obvious how they, that breaks down because it's sort of um, geo uh, boundary too, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah, yeah. It so should be so quite the, natural. Like it should yeah. be quite similar to the already existing rugby provinces in the NPC. <laughs> Based them on the NPC. <laughs> yeah. Well, they are they are natural divisions. It yeah, is natural yeah. to to have a country divided into uh, states where every state is based around a capital city. Okay. And so there would be a capital city. And there would be a federal um, governing body, central governing body. So how how would do you think the the mechanisms of all that work then describe that? If there was a federal governing body, the major question would be the extent to which New Zealand was a confederation. And a confederation is when basically all of the power is devolved back to the states, except for a very small number of things like uh, uh, defence and uh, foreign affairs. Right. Or whether New Zealand would be more of a federation which is more of a balance of power between the central government. Like, like Australia? Yeah, Australia or the United States. Yeah, US, yeah. So we'd have to choose as to which of those we'd want to have, which is essentially ask, answering the question of to what extent are there going to be centralised powers? What would your preference be? My preference would be for extreme localization. So you're more in favour of, of confederation then? I'd be more in favour of confederation because it's the most decentralised uh, possible system. So I'd have all provinces, they could set their own taxation, they could set their own immigration laws, they could set their own, uh, for example, drug laws, they could have their own firearms laws. I'd be in favour of that. Wow. That means that uh, central government would have to give up so much control. Yes. Be a complete and... reinvention of how we do things. Yes. They're not going to want to give up that sort of control, of course. So um, you'd need to have either a revolution or more peaceably, you'd have a, a party that would come to parliament with the specific intent of, of devolving power from the central government. And that could be something like the South Island independence movement. They could uh, get 5%, come to power, and as a, as a consequence of uh, their support in a coalition government, they could say they want certain powers devolved back to the provinces. Where does, um, or where would Māori fit in on this? Because... There's some, you know, sovereignty issues that are kicking around there too that this would impinge on, I'm picking. I'm not sure about that, but what I can tell you is that I personally am a mixed-race uh, Nadi Perot white person, and yep. uh, I, I don't like to think in terms of uh, uh, Maori and white people having separate interests. I'm more of a nationalist. I think of uh, New Zealand as, as, as one, one, uh, one entity, one race. So uh, I'm not sure about that. I'm sure that if you would uh, if you would try and reintroduce a provincial parliament, there'd be a, a big stink kicked up. But then you could always have, for example, Tuhoe could be a separate province in a provincial system because they never signed the Treaty of Waitangi and they're always mentioning that. They're always saying that. And so we could say, well, you can have a self-governing province under, under a federal model, a confederated model. Much again like um, the Swiss situation. 
very similar. I think the Swiss situation is an example for the whole world of success because Switzerland, they're an exceptionally wealthy and uh, prosperous nation. I guess it also gives the option, because we see that in other countries, that if uh, one particular state's doing really well or specialising in one particular you know, area or, or, or a couple of areas like technology or or, or agriculture, though there's probably going to be a lot of agriculture around all, all the provinces of New Zealand, that people could would have a choice, that have be able to have a preference to where they want to go and live and the sort of lifestyle they want. Like you're talking about cannabis before. I guess it's conceivable that, that one of these provinces could decide to legalize cannabis and, and people who want to have that environment, they can move there. Sure. Like if you take uh, Northland, for example, uh, Northland has a very high Maori population. I think some 50% of their population are Maori. Northland's also famous for massive cannabis consumption. Those two facts are, are strongly related. Yeah. And I think if you would have a confederated system, it's entirely believable that Northland would have, they would vote for legal cannabis. And uh, they could say, well, we're going to have cannabis cafes. We're going to have tourists come to Northland. And if Auckland doesn't want to do that, if Auckland is afraid of cannabis for whatever reason, they can ban it, and uh, tourists can go there and drink alcohol instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get pissed. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Uh, what about um, uh, law enforcement, things like that? Would that be done at a local level as well? Yes, as, as you see, done. In, it would be similar to the United States, where you'd have a um, you'd have state uh, state police. You'd also inevitably you'd have to have some kind of federal police. Yeah, but uh, they would be more concerned with catching spies and uh, that sort of business, that sort of uh, foreign affairs business rather than uh, the other laws that would be left to the states. Of course, you'd still have some federal crimes like treason and uh, certain kind of murders and yeah. uh, interstate fraud would still be yeah. federal crimes. But uh, all the things that are normally left to the, the, uh, the independent police departments today could just be left to the provinces. Okay, so they would have limited power under your model at federal level, limited power. And um, just like defence, like you say, national security, um, and uh, and and sort of the things we're used to from the other models, like the United States and and places like that. You have a sheriff, would you? Have the <laughs> local you sheriff. Could, you could have a sheriff. You could have local sheriffs. It depends if we'd go back to the county system. You see, there's uh, different levels of decentralisation that you could have. You could go back to states. You could go back to provinces. Or you could even devolve powers back to individual counties. You see, in the United States. Right. Sometimes yeah. they have elections for the county dog catcher because uh, powers yeah, are so devolved yeah. that uh, they don't have appointments for anything. Boss hog. Yeah, that's right. So I think we'd uh, I think we'd have to think about it a lot. We'd have to have a national conversation. The yeah. entire nation would have to come together and put forward what they wanted in terms of decentralized power because that's never been asked of us. We've just can had you, basically everything forced on us. Can you see then? Um, okay, it's early days, and uh, with the the question marks that people have over the fit for purpose nature of our current political system, you know, the way it's devolved, I think you were saying earlier, it's sort of the entropy is, is slowing it right up. It's, it's, it's sort of losing its um, operability. Can you see this ever being something that people would, would go for? And if so, how long do you think it could take? Because definitely the question of whether this democracy is, working properly, is being asked. It is up for grabs at the moment. I'm sure of that. I've never seen more people asking whether our political system is working like it should be working than today. It's not only the crime, 
but uh, you see also it's so hard for the average person to own a home just from just from their work if you go back to 1992 the uh, average house was about $105,000 the average wage was about $15 so it was 7,000 hours of labor to own your own house and that's about three and a half years of saved labor and that's not that much no, but if you fast forward to today, the average uh, wage is about $35 an hour the average house is about $900,000 you have more like 25,000 hours of labor to own the average house and that's impossible most people just can't save that much money over an entire lifetime. And I think that has led to an extreme level of despair, especially among young people today. So I don't think, as, I think uh, there's a lot of a lot of older people in New Zealand who have uh, investment properties and are still sitting quite pretty. And they're not really keen on revolution because uh, things are looking good for them. But if you would look at the younger people specifically, the in other words, the age group that usually launches a revolution, the 20 to 30s, I think they're more upset with the system than ever. So um, I think, yeah, something could happen quite soon, especially if the economic the economic situation keeps getting worse. Yeah, but there's also, as well as that, I think you're right, um, anything that that really destroys the, the dream of being self-reliant, and that is usually expressed through owning your own house at some point. So I get that. That's a big threat to any um, established power. But also... The tyrannical stuff is happening. We're being censored. Laws are being talked about that will actually stop free speech, actually stop it. That's also something that is out there as well. That's surely got to be on people's minds. It's got to be on people's minds. And to me, it's one great reason why powers should be decentralised from the central government as much as possible. You see in Sweden right now and in France, they're both uh, going through a national debate because the local police forces have uh, made it so that they can listen to anybody through their cell phone without a warrant. So they can just decide that you're a person of interest and they can turn your cell phone microphone on and have a listen to what you're talking about in your uh, living room. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I can see the same thing coming to New Zealand because uh, New Zealand, our government is taking orders from the same globalists that's giving the orders overseas. So, yeah, we've got to be prepared for more crackdowns on free speech and I think that means that we need to start thinking about political systems that are going to protect our liberties rather than just uh, apathetically drifting along like we usually do. Yeah, she'll be right, mate. Yeah, I mean, that's a great attitude if it's 1860 and you've got no food and you've got no tools and there's a tribe of cannibals just uh, north of you that wants to come down and eat you. It's a great attitude to just relax a bit. Yeah, but, she'll be uh, right. Things are more complicated now. We need to think more like the Germans and the Japanese and be a bit more... Be a bit more orderly, I think. Well, since you've put this, when, when did you publish this piece? Uh, was it how recent was it? Uh, the article about provincialization was about six weeks ago. Okay, so reasonably fresh. Yeah. What sort of reaction have you had? A lot of people agree. I've been really surprised at how many people agree. There's just about no one who wants to go into bat for the central government and for centralization in general. Just about nobody wants to argue that position, and just about everybody can see the merit in. Uh, powers being devolved from the central government back to the people. So I've been surprised at how much support there has been. But to me, that reflects the extent of dissatisfaction with the political system in general. It's been really interesting chatting with you, Vince. Vince McLeod, vjmpublishing.nz is your website, and people can go there and read that piece and other pieces that you put up. There's quite a bit of content there. Thanks for coming on Reality Check Radio and telling us about your ideas. It's been really interesting. Cheers, Paul. It's been great to have the opportunity to speak to you, and I hope that uh, people enjoyed this talk. 
RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.